you have found your place. Let me just follow along as I read these two verses. <clears throat> the Bible says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now bow your heads with me just for a moment of prayer. Father, we come this morning being reminded that this is your word. These are your people. Father, this is your work that you do in us. We just pray that you would do that in Christ's name. Amen and amen. As we look at this passage this morning, verses 1 and 2 provide a, a great transition in the book of Romans. Uh, it brings us to a place of, of change of thought or tone, as it were, with the Apostle Paul. In fact, it, you notice that as you look in ver chapters 1 through 11, 108 out of 100 and, uh, or 308 out of 315 verses uh, are statements of facts. Uh, there's things that he's wanting us to know, things he's wanting uh, to teach us all through the book of Romans. And, and as he goes through this, very few times does he actually command anything of us. And, and yet here in chapter 12 alone, there's over 20 commands that he gives the people of God. And so he's coming to a point of, uh, of making some application for us. He, he reminds us of of what we already know or maybe what we've already heard, that theology itself is meant to, uh, to be put into practice, not left on the shelf in dusty old books. And so he is, he is coming to a conclusion, what, what theology, what the gospel, what God has done for us in Christ Jesus looks like, how it looks in our everyday life. It also begs the question as we get to verses 1 and 2 of chapter number 12 of, just how involved or, or how much impact does the gospel have on our life? Maybe as we might find in our culture, the Christianity or, or following Jesus or believing in Jesus is something similar to that of a voter ID card. You know, you use it once a year and, and maybe if you do that, I guess, anymore. Something like a hobby, which we do once we like or we get involved with, we're not really good at it, but, but we, don't, we don't see it all the time. Or maybe Christianity as modeled in, in our society oftentimes with a casual Christianity that you can have Christ without commitment. Yet Paul wants to uh, assure to us this morning without any question, without any doubt, that the word of God will not let us, let us live in that place. He answers to us in the most absolute way one could, and that is the gospel impacts every every part and aspect of our lives everything everything but more than just the implications of the gospel which dominate the remaining of the of the book chapters 12 through chapter number 16 he, he does something here which is uh, equally needful for us this morning as we come and, and look at this i hope which is is brought out, and that is he, he ties together Christian living with the appropriate and the proper motivation. Uh, there, there's a connection between the uh, chapters 1 through 11 and 
verses 1 through 2. He, he reminds us that Christianity to be lived out in a God-honoring, empowering way has to be from that right motivation. Motivation, we find that in verse number 1. Look at it with me. At the beginning of that, as he connects us with Romans 1 through 11, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now, it is true that we cannot understand verse number 1 without understanding chapters 1 through 11. Uh, we don't just jump in here like a parachute uh, a shooter and you just get kind of in the middle of this, not knowing where you come from or where you've been. And, and that you see that in the language that he uses here in verse number one, as he as he begins this, as most uh, most commentators say, this is the the great therefore in the book of Romans. This transition. Now he's not moving from one subject to another as if to to start something all over. He's he's connecting and saying in verse number twelve. Therefore, building upon all that he's already said, he, he's bringing everything in these first few chapters. He's bringing all of that to bear upon this exhortation which he's about to ask of them. Therefore, is a word of uniting. It is a transition. It is something which brings us to certain conclusions. So therefore, we must understand what those things are if we are to understand the conclusion. Look back with me at chapter number 3 of Romans. We'll walk through that. I don't have the time this morning to walk chapter by chapter. And so we'll take a uh, 30,000 feet view of the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. Romans. Chapters 1 through 3, Paul begins to tell us and declare to us something about mankind, something about humanity. He does this through through two lenses. He does that through through the Gentiles we find in chapter number 1, and he does that through the Jews in chapter number 2. And and, and he brings us to this this grand uh, declaration in chapter number 3 and verse number 10. He begins by reminding us in chapter number one that the Gentiles, though they knew God, they did not glorify God as God. And so what they did, they heaped to themselves images and and idols and started worshiping creation rather than the creator. Well, the Jews would scoff at idolatry and and yet he comes to the Jews and he says, you you scoff at their disobedience that they broke God's law. And yet you do the very same thing. You've disobeyed God, you've worshiped false idols and you have broken God's law as well verse number 10 of chapter number 3 he comes to that grand conclusion and he says as it is written none is righteous no not one reminding both Jew and Gentile and, and if we could say it in another way reminding that all of humanity fall in this one passage of scripture we've all sinned he goes further to say and We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God in verse number 23. Jew or Gentile? No exception. We've all all disobeyed God's law. We've all broken his command. We've all went our own way. And there is none righteous, no, not one. And the writer is trying to insist insist that there is no way by our own work or by our own merit to fix the problem. 
It isn't just that, that you have an issue that we've all sinned against God. He's holy and, and, and completely righteous, and, and we are not. We've not measured up to that. And because we have violated God, he's saying there's nothing we can do to fix the problem. He wants the Romans to understand that. He wants us to understand that. That's what he means when he says, for all of sin and come short of the glory of God. But he doesn't stop there. The gospel begins to inform us and tell us about what God has done for us. And that's the amen part as you come to the book of Romans. He begins in verse number 21. But for now, or but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. What does he mean? Well, he means that there is this righteousness which is, is manifested, brought out apart from your own works. Something other than what you can earn. Because after all, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And if we have all sinned, then the wages we have all earned, our works, the, the grand sum of that is death. Separation from God for all eternity. And yet the gospel says there's something else to be said about our standing before God. There's a righteousness which is manifested apart from what you've done. It's rooted in something else. It's rooted in someone else and what they have done. He says, he goes on and says, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Verse number 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe through is no distinction. Just as all have sinned without distinction, both uh, great men and small men and, and, and great women and small women, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So this righteousness is offered and manifested to all by faith, not by works. Well, the Jews and have been exhausting themselves in Jesus' day trying to earn favor with God and trying to work their way to heaven. Jesus says to the, to the exhausted, you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. The Gentiles, they're, they're so far off kilter that they're out worshiping other gods and, and, and stones and rocks and trees and all these things that have no ability to save. And yet God in the midst of all that comes to us and said, there's a righteousness given to you that you do not work for only by faith to be received. That's what he says in verse number 24, isn't it? And are justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Turn with me to chapter number 5. In chapter number four, Paul begins or continues to argue that it isn't your own merit, your own work. It is by faith. It's always been by faith. Chapter number five, he makes that grand statement in verse number one. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, emphasizing this justification, this righteousness given to us by faith in God. What does he mean righteous? Well, it means our, our, our right standing, our, our, our right deeds. He's saying there's a, a righteousness which we cannot earn. There's a righteousness which is not ours. It's foreign to us because, because we, have, we have earned unrighteousness. And that is our standing before God. Our, our, our sin has separated us from God. But there's a righteousness given to us. There's a right standing with God given to us by faith. 
It's a doctrine of justification. He has declared us innocent, cleared from our sin. Those of you who have felt the weight of your own sin know the great joy of what that means. You've experienced it in your own life as you come and read through these pages and get to number five and say, no, this is a gift. Because he says, to make sure we emphatically understand the grace of God, look at with me in verse number eight of chapter number five. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinning, Christ died for us. That is the gospel and that's the grace of God. Not what you've deserved. Not what you've earned. We don't want that. What we've earned is the wages of our sin, our disobedience to God, but what is offered to us in in the midst of our own disobedience the bible says is the grace of god and that he gave his son to pay the penalty of those sins paul's wanting to remind us lest we we get a big head we 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 believe a little bit of the bible we 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 receive the gospel we start living a christian life and, and and so we think we're a pretty good person you know we've we've pretty good to our neighbor and we sometimes pay taxes And he's saying, no, don't you understand? The grace of God means that he comes to us in the midst of our own disobedience. In chapter number 80, he emphasizes that that even further as he begins to speak in verse number 15 of chapter 8. We who were disobedient, we who were in the midst of our sinning, we who were we're walking away from God, not seeking God in our own unrighteousness. The Bible says in verse number 15, instead of receiving what we ought to receive, and that is the judgment of God in the gospel, we receive something else. We receive, he says at the end of verse number 15, or at 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. God doesn't just save us. The gospel isn't just taking care of a sin debt. He's saying here that he gives us the spirit of God. He brings us into the family of God. He calls us who were at enmity, at odds, at arms with him. He calls us son. That's amazing. That's amazing. Not only does he call us son, he goes on and speaks about the uh, the. Uh, he speaks about the eternal security that we have in Christ Jesus. And it really is the rest of chapter number 8. Let me just read verse number 35. As he reminds us that God is for us. And if God be for us, who can be against us in verse 31? In verse 35, he says of chapter number 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sore? And the answer to that is emphatically, without without a question, nothing. Nothing. He's just building and reminding us what the gospel is, what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Not only this this forgiveness of our sins, not because we've worked for it, but, but because we trust in Christ. And that forgiveness bringing us into the family of God and assuring us as he has brought us in, nothing will sever us from that relationship. Nothing. 
nothing in this life and nothing which ushers us into the next life will separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. So profound is this as Paul as he speaks about that and, and, and deals with that in Romans 9, 10. He concludes in verse number 11 praising God of, of the depths and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable are his ways. He's just praising God for what God has done for us. And so when we get into verse number 1 of chapter number 12, he says, based upon all of this, which he refers to in chapter number 12 as the mercies of God. Not just mercy. Not just one act that God pours out on us through Christ Jesus, but the multiple blessings, the the multifaceted blessings of God given to us in, in Christ as you just walk through the Bible and see his goodness poured out. Over and over the mercy of God. Mercy describing his compassion. It describes his pity for us. And it also reminds us that oftentimes it is the hardness and pride in our own heart that stays the mercy of God. Because we say we'll have no pity. We need no pity. And yet God unveiling all of this in in the first three chapters and over and over through the book of Romans says, yes, you are in trouble. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The the pity is which moved his heart to to bring that resolution, to bring that answer in that state in which we lived in. And he's saying, based upon this mercy that that you have seen and that, that you this morning that know Christ have received from him, he said, that's the basis I urge you. Now, Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ, given authority by Christ himself. He even begins his letters, oftentimes as he writes, as Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, a servant of God. And so here he could, he could command the church in Rome. He could say, you know what? Live this way, and I, I mean it with all authority. But he doesn't do that. And you'll not live your Christian life by that way. What does he do? He brings us back to that glorious reality. How do we live this Christian life? What what pleases God as we obey him? Well, it is obedience from the heart. He says, I beseech you based upon these mercies. Is obedience bathed in the reality of what God has done for us? Well, sure, the, the, the Bible says there is a fear of the Lord, but it's not a it's not for the saints, it's not a, a, a terror. Which commands us obedience. The Bible says the devils believe in God and they fear and tremble. And it's slavish fear. There's something more for the saints. Something more nobler that the word of God calls us to as we consider what God has done for us. And that is to live out this life in in gratitude, thankfulness, and adoration. To live out in devotion and affection to who God is. That's what he's trying to motivate in his his hearts. That's what he's trying to say to us this morning. After all that God has done for you, after all that God offers to us in Christ, I, I, I beseech you based upon this reality, the same thing he does in Philippians 2, isn't it? If there be any consolation, if there's any mercy, if there's any of these things, live out this way. And the answer is there's all of those things found in, in God. And so, so therefore, beloved, love one another is what he says in Philippians 2. Likewise, here, pulling and and calling us out of our thankfulness. What does he call us to do? Well, he calls us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. 
holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, these days, the Bible, the Bible days when they were being written, both Jew and Gentile were familiar with sacrifices. They would take their gift to their, their, their temple or whatever it was, and they would, they would offer it to whoever the priest was, and there the priest would take care of it, and, and they would take the animal and they would kill it. And it was done. And it says it's not what he wants from us. He's really asking us to to really look at it through that language of of presenting to God, but look at it through a different lens. It isn't the animal that he wants, it's the worshiper that he wants. And and even as we come here and sing on Sunday mornings and all that we do, it it isn't just the voices that we want joined together, but it's, it's really your hearts joined together that God wants, that pleases him. And so here he says to us, Asking of us to present ourselves, all of who we are, as a gift to God to lay our own lives upon the altar before the Lord. I want you to notice first in this call for us is is an act of the will. I can't offer your body. I can't offer your life and your gifts and your talents unto God as an acceptable sacrifice. You can't offer mine for me. I can't surrender to God for you, and you can't surrender to God for me. And he, he's saying this is, a, this is a joyful, humble, thankful act of the will. It's to humble yourself and surrender yourself to God. It is an act of the will. But not only is it an act of the will, he goes on and says, it is a whole act of offering all of our lives, all that we consist of, not just part of you, He's not saying just come and, and, and check this in and check that in. And he, or, or, or I just want this in your life and, and you can leave the rest alone. I remember hearing a story or, or reading a story of a preacher who preached so well that his congregation prayed he never left the pulpit. And he lived so poorly when he got out, they prayed that he never entered again. And you see that kind of idea that we, we disconnect parts of our life. Uh, facets, we put them in little boxes. They say men is good about that. We're... we do that kind of thing and he's saying that's not what he's wanting from us all of you your talents, your dreams, your ambitions your giftedness your possessions your future, your past, your present all that consists of you, he's saying that we we offer all of that to God bring yourselves, he uses the word body to to remind us that all consists of, of who we are that is what Paul is asking, the sum and total of us, as Calvin would say, it's an abandonment of self offered to God based upon the mercies of God and all that he has done for us. But, but notice he says it's not just offering our bodies the fullness of who we are. He says it's a living sacrifice. Living. It's not something you do once. I did that. You know, I kind of checked it off and, 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 and I did that I, I went to I, I went to youth camp and I they give an altar thing and I took a stick and I threw it in a fire and, and so I did that once you know how they do those kind of things God is concerned with all of life but not just the erasing of yourself sometimes as our mind thinks of when we think about this passage but a lively activeness of yourself the, the continuation and the activity and the energy and the thought and, and all that consists of you, not just at this moment, but the, but the continuation of that and how it's played out in life. 
a, a living sacrifice reminding us that it isn't, a, 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 it isn't just something dead, but, but the way in which you live your life, the sum of who you are, that is what he wants. And another way we might say that in Romans number 6, he gives us some of that language as he speaks about we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He goes on in chapter number 6 and verse number 33, Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, as members of God as instruments for righteousness. That's what he's saying to us here in this living sacrifice. We present ourselves to God and to his service. And to his service. All spheres of our culture. That means when you go to Walmart and you run into a lot of people, that probably people, you, you know, you get aggravated and all of that. And even in those moments when you go to down in Mountain Market and you buy gas. And to the heavy things and the relationships in your life, to the way you spend your energy and your talents and your giftedness, all of it offered to God, lived out through this reality that we have submitted, surrendered, given ourselves to him as a sacrifice. Another way that Paul mentions it in the word of God is that we, we live this life with this overarching goal for the glory of God. You read that in First Corinthians he says, whether you eat or whether you drink, you all for the glory of God. Now, I know sometimes in our mind we, we tend to think that that means that, that everything I do must be some kind of cultic practice. So I must be singing a hymn or, or reading my Bible as I'm driving down the road. Actually, I've seen people on their phones. They might as well read their Bible, but it might be safer for me anyway. But you, you, you tend to think in that kind of cultic practice or religious practice. And he's saying, no, that all of our life and everything that we do is impacted by the reality that we want to honor God and glorify God in these actions, whether we rest or whether we play, whether we work, whatever we do, do to the glory of God. Because God is pleased with all of life. It is to be pleased with all of our life. Live for the glory of God in your entertainment. Live for the glory of God. Now, let me say along the, that way, he does not ex call us to escape life, as some might think. But rather to strive for a more excellent life, engaged in work and relationship in the world around us for a higher purpose and a higher good, for God's glory. Fourthly, notice not only does he call us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. He says, this is your spiritual worship. Now, some translations, I think rightly so, translate spiritual as uh, reasonable, rational. The word itself could be understood as logical. Uh, it has the idea of a thoughtful or a thought out kind of understanding to it. And he says, in some ways, some commentators say this. I agree with them. They say, this just makes sense. This is the kind of worship God is blessed or pleased with. It just makes sense. We live for ourselves and we, we live for the world and we live for sin. We live for our own, own pleasures and our own outcomes. And at the end, we've received ashes most of the time, if not, well, really all of the time. 
And yet now we live for an eternal weight of glory, which will be revealed to us in Jesus Christ. And he says, it just makes sense. But thirdly, notice verse number two. He says that we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable worship, reasonable service. Verse number two, he says, and I think verse number two is an explanation of verse number one. What does it mean as we live this life devoted to God? He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now he gives us two things in this passage. One, in the negative sense of saying, do not be conformed to this world. That simply means do not be squeezed into the world's mode. Uh, model or mold as it is it tries to make you like itself it it is set the pattern we live in the pattern every day the philosophy of our age and he says that your life and is not to be lived in the way the world does things the way the world thinks about things the way the world pursues things don't be conformed to it and and really if you look Throughout the book of Romans, he's saying this is the very thing that God has delivered us from, saved us out of. And and really, what would it be to fall back into those things? Paul is saying, don't be conformed to the image of this world. Be squeezed into its mold. Don't don't be carried off like the world is carried off. The world means the the age which we live in or the world system and, and not the physical world, the earth we uh, we see a difference throughout the Word of God, and what marks our age is a good question we can ask. And I want to give you two things which Paul gives us in the book of Titus, and there are many places in the Word of God we can look, but there's just two, I think, that are worth noting. The world system is marked, one, by worldly passion. Worldly passion. You find that in Titus chapter number 2. And he says that, this is that idea that that lust, that sinful desire, the, the uncontrolled appetite for sin and to satisfy one's desires without constraint. The, the passion is not bad. We, we want passionate people. But as he combines worldly passion, he's trying to say that the sinfulness of humanity, its uncontrollable urge to, to gratify self at all costs, He's saying we're not, to be, we're not to be molded after that, falling into that and patterning our lives after those things. And we see that in many places in our world, but one particular in our current age is in the sexuality that we live in. We see everything is, is just really out of control in self-expression. is isn't just the fact that we dedicate a whole month of, of our calendar to... Uh, to propagating LGBTQ plus, there's an A somewhere in that, uh, and, and boasting in all of those things, which is which is grossly immoral in God's standards. It, it goes against God's design. But it, we celebrate uh, immorality and sexual impurities on a heterosexual level all the time as well. We watch it; it's our entertainment. We're numb by it. And the world tells us we we should. We should gratify ourselves. After all, we might as well eat and drink, have fun today because tomorrow we die. What does it matter? That's the world we live in. 
know, there's other illustrations I'm sure that we could give to that, but you see the reality of that, that, that we are influenced. We, we turn on the TV, you can't escape it, and he's saying don't let that mark your life. Don't let that be the pattern to, to mold your thinking. It's what God saves us out of, these worldly passions, uncontrollable desires or out of control desires but the second thing in titus 2 mentions he says is that of ungodliness ungodliness now when we say that immediately our minds go to some foul act or some immoral act as we think about ungodly or sacrilegious or something that is just grotesque in our own minds at least it does in my mind when i first read that but there's more to that than just ungodly It is the reality that the world functions as if God does not exist. And if he does exist, he's something other than who he is. Or or if he is who people say he is, then what is it? We don't care. He's on the outside anyway. We're not going to listen to him. That's Romans chapter number one, isn't it? When they knew God, they glorified him not as God, but they made themselves their own gods. Godliness could probably best be understood as living this life carrying out our our day in and day out without the consideration of God at all. Without the consideration of God at all. He has no bearing on our decisions. His word and his will shed no influence on on the way we live this life and the choices we make. It's best to think of this not as uh, ungodliness, but as godlessness as much as anything else. Now, I know we live in an age that in the past decades has been building up to the message we heard in the past year as we have, we have paraded science as the end all to any debate and question, right? Follow the science, trust the science, I believe in science, I believe in science. But it isn't just happened over this past year with the pandemic and all the things like that. That is the mindset of the world. That is the, the doctrine of evolution. We don't need God. We don't, we don't want God. And so in the process of that, we want those things which we can control in a lab and we can manipulate and we can make say whatever we want to say. And so it sounds nice that we're not arrogant, so we say we follow the science. The truth is, is a manifestation of godlessness in our society, ungodliness in our age. And he's saying, do not let that mark your life. Now let that be the pattern of how you live. It's the very thing. The world is trying to squeeze us into their mold. And he says, let us not be conformed to it. And it is, as we understand, being conformed to it, it is that gravitational pull. It's almost, it is, not almost, it's swimming against the stream and the current going against the grain and all those metaphors that you could use in this society because it is headlong anti-God in every aspect, in every way. In the midst of that, he says, there's something different. In a different way, you're to live this life. The world, they live their life in, in, in lieu of themselves, as Paul says in Second Timothy chapter number 3 and verse number 2 as he speaks about the perilous times of the end of the age. And, and the very first statement he makes on this long list of indictments about the world and how it will be, he says the very first thing is they will be lovers of themselves. And just look around, guys, right? Are we not there? Despite what anyone else says, despite what harm it may cause to society, we love ourselves. 
And Paul says to us, as we look at the word of God, we're not to live that way. In fact, in so much as you already had that settled if you got past verse number one, that is, you've given self over to God. Therefore, don't be conformed. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed. And the word transformed means to change. It is the, the idea of being completely changed from one thing to another. We read in the New Testament that we're a new creation in Christ Jesus. And speaking of that new birth, being born again in John chapter number three and other places, it says that, and it says that, behold, all old things are passed away and all things become new. And that's true of every one of you that's that's put your faith in Jesus Christ. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. And and here in Romans chapter 12, number one and two, he says, let that be played out and lived out in your life as you see the progress of that truth come to bear. As you're not being conformed to this world, but you're being transformed, you're being changed uh, from one way of living to another. How was this done? He says in verse number two. And actually, the word transform means that which is being done to us. We are being transformed. And verse number two, by the renewal of your mind. By the renewal of your mind. Bringing back to our minds the the truth of the gospel. Growing in knowledge and in grace. We read this morning that change, true lasting change, doesn't come uh, first and foremost from my action. That is necessary. We're to live out our faith and live what we believe. But it first starts with what we believe it starts with the inner mind and the thought and, and what we hold dear in this life. And that's what he's saying, that we're being transformed as our, our thoughts and the patterns of the way we think and view the world around us is being changed and informed by the renewing of your mind. How often we have said here and heard over and over just in the past couple of years I've been here, I, I don't know, probably at least once a month someone says it, if not more than that, preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. Why do they say that? Well, not because you forgot, right? Basic facts. To bring those realities back to our minds as we change our perspective from one degree to another, to, to realign our thoughts and our understandings about life through God's lens and not through the world's. That's what changes us. Makes a new creation in Christ. That's what that transformation takes place to to look at the world through a brand new set of eyes. Over and over. And it could be said that so little transformation takes place in our lives because we neglect those gifts which God has given to the church. Pastor had mentioned that this morning in his. In his prayers, he talked about uh, James and those who come and look at the law of God and that which is meant to correct and to inform and to instruct us. And, and there are some, as we look into that, we walk away and we forget, what did it say? Where was I at? Making no impact and no difference. And for some of us, it's not even that much. It's just this sheer lack of familiarity, lack of being in, in it, reading Challenging our minds and our thoughts. Lack of that encouragement and fellowship with the saints and prayer. 
And we need that. We need our minds renewed over and over to be renewed and revived as we face this world because our, uh, we face not things that we can, we can do in our own strength. You can't live this Christian life all by yourself because you're a good person and you're strong. You need the means and the grace which God gives to us. And so do I. And so do I. And so we look at this calling to be transformed and we're being transformed by the renewing of our mind. Secondly, we may fail also because as we come to this passage of Scripture, he, he connects those two motivations, doesn't he? He doesn't just say out to the Romans, go out and be a good boy and be a good girl and, 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 and live right and be right. No, he says, based upon the mercies of God. And I think many times our own defeat in our own life, the ups and downs, is because we, we forget, we, we're not fueled off of, we don't have that overflowing of gratitude and, and consideration of what Christ has done for us, which fuels us, helps us, enables us to live out the obedient Christian life. And so we live in defeat and discouragement and despair, forgetting the gospel, forgetting what God has done for us. And likewise, we forget it and think, well, it's all up to me. We fall into legalism, don't we? In both sense, we need to come back to this passage of Scripture like an old friend. Someone who's good to visit with from time to time. You know those you have that close friendship with and what a joy it is and refreshing it is to just come and visit together with that old friend, whoever it is in your life, and just what life-giving. In places like this, Romans 12, 1 and 2, is that source for us to bring us back based upon the mercies of God. Present yourselves as a living sacrifice unto him. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And he says at the end of verse number 2, in so doing... You will prove the will of God. As he's saying, he says, well, as you grow in Christ and in his image, so also will you grow in living out the will of God for your life. I think John Stott said it plainly when he said, first, our minds is renewed by the word and spirit of God. And we're able to discern the desire and will of God. And we are increasingly transformed by it. I know there's. A lot of young people in here this morning, and one of the things that we fight with the most in life as we're growing up, what is God's will for my life? What does God want me to do? What vocation, what area, what, what ministry? All of that tends to overwhelm us. What can I say without, without knowing you very well this morning, even at all, I can tell you what the God's will is from this passage. God's will is that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And God's will is that you not be conformed to this world, but that you be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's God's will for your life. And as you live out that, uh, that will for your life, during that obedience, you will grow in discernment for God's will in every other area of your life. You will grow in every area, every other area of God's will for your life. Now, let me just ask you this morning in closing. Does what I've been speaking about resemble your life? Have you seen and received the mercies of God? Walking through Romans chapter 1 through 11, do you, do you come to understand and know what God has 
done for you in Christ Jesus. And if you haven't received his mercies this morning, it's extended to you in Christ Jesus even today. To all who will come, to all who will believe, to all who will humble themselves and confess Jesus Christ Lord to the glory of God the Father. And do you live this Christian life, Christian, do you live this life out of thankfulness of what Christ has done for you? If not, I want to call you to walk again and again through this passage of Scripture and what it means to be in Christ and at what cost and at what grace is extended to you. With that, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this day that you've given to us. Thank you for your love for us. And it is true, the gospel is clear and plain. It reminds us that we have all, everyone in here, without exception, without doubt, have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. And yet what love, that while we were sinners in the midst of sinning, in the midst of our disobedience, yet you, you would give your only begotten son that any who would believe in you would not perish but have everlasting life. Father, I pray that those here this morning, that any here that, that are like that, God, that you would just bring them to Christ. I pray that you'd open their eyes and work in their heart and work in their life. And Father, I pray for us as Christians as we just reminded of what you've done for us in Christ. What, what other option would we have? What other thing would we want to do but offer ourselves as a living sacrifice? Help us live a life that glorifies God. No matter what we do, no matter where we go, no matter what we run into, God, help that, that desire to glorify Christ. Help that, that overcome our temptations to respond the way the world would respond. Lord, I pray that you would continue as you have and will do transform us into the image of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.